Welcome to People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose is a podcast of inspiring people whose stories help you see things differently, live with intentionality, elevate the way you participate in the world, and take the necessary leaps in your life to seek and find your passions. Come with us and develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose and unleash your truest potential. People like to have a piece of the artist. If one can find, even if one stumbles upon it, something that you really, that one really enjoys doing, and you find yourself planning time to do it, then you yourself become a person of purpose. The more you know about painting, the harder it is. An artist is a communicator. A writer is a communicator. Mm-hmm. An actor, a dancer, it doesn't matter. You're communicating ideas, you are communicating observations, you're sharing experiences. I find all of those very important. If I have opened some eyes or given even one person another way to look at the world, Yay. Purpose is simply having a reason to get up in the morning and having a plan. Barbara Waterman Peters is an artist from Topeka, Kansas, whose award-winning work is in museums as well as corporate and private collections. She is shown regionally, nationally, and internationally in over 275 solo, invitational, and juried exhibitions. Barbara is a founding member of the Collective Art Gallery and is a charter member of Circle of Seven. In 2010, she became the first core artist in NOTO, short for Northern Topeka, founding Studio 831. Barbara taught at Washburn and Kansas State Universities, as well as Lassen Community College in California. Currently, she writes about artists for Topeka and Lawrence magazines. She also writes an artist spotlight online for Topeka Magazine. Barbara has a BFA from Washburn University, an MFA from Kansas State University, and was awarded an Honorary Doctor of Fine Arts from Washburn University in 2016. She has received a Certificate of Recognition for Outstanding Achievement from the State of Kansas and the Monroe Award from the Washburn University Alumni Association. In 2011, she was awarded the RT for Distinguished Visual Artists from Arts Connect in Topeka. Barbara has illustrated several books, including Basi, A Mind-Altering Cat, and The Collective at 25, both of which she also wrote and designed. In addition, she has created book cover art for a number of authors. In 2015, she illustrated The Fish's Wishes, written by Glendon Buckley. Together, they published this children's book and have formed their own company, Pen and Brush Press, LLC. For many years, Barbara has been the staff artist for the Andrew and Georgia Nice Gray Theater at Washington University. In 2017, she spearheaded the Noto Plain Art Project, an exhibit of the work of the participating artists, and will be bringing out a book documenting the project in 2018. 
I first met Barbara on the December 1st Friday Art Walk in Northern Topeka with my former high school art teacher and now friend, Mr. Bradley LaDuke. I knew she was someone special by the way LaDuke spoke about her and with her. He called her the Queen of Topeka. When I met Barbara at her studio, I too could feel she was a special artist. She was so gosh darn personal with everyone she talked with. When it was my turn to meet her, we got to talking about her new project and she took me behind her studio. We spent a good 10 to 15 minutes analyzing her unfinished mural painting. It was a lot of fun to ask questions and hear her thought process. She is so intentional. I asked her why she lives like this and she told me she has to. That to me is purpose. I wanted to know more. But there was more to see and people who wanted to see her. So Leduc and I moved on and I realized later that evening that I needed to interview her for People of Purpose. A month later, we sat down in her studio in Topeka and I learned so much more. I think Barbara has a wonderful soul. You cannot see by listening, but she has the most caring eyes too. She's an excellent listener and very compassionate. I really like how she sees herself as having a role in the experience of viewing art. From the time I had with her in her studio, it is very apparent that she does really value this part of being an artist. I would love to have the chance to take a painting course with her. I think there are many principles one can learn from stepping into her mindset and behind the eyes of Barbara. I'm excited to present her perspective in this podcast episode. So I hope you enjoy as I present you today's lovely person of purpose, Barbara Waterman Peters. Hello, Tanner. Nice to see you. It's great to see you. Your studio is beautiful. It's really cool to be back. I met you two months ago, I think, as of yesterday. Yes, I remember the evening, and we <laughs> had a wonderful discussion about yeah, one of my paintings, along with Brad LeDuc. So it's always a privilege and an honor to get to talk about one's work to people who are truly interested. Yeah, I can tell. I, uh, really respect that about you. I know a lot of artists maybe are a little bit more insular in their own head. And you you seem like an ambassador to art a little bit. You want other people to live in that world as well, appreciate it, understand it. Yeah, that's, that's kind of an, a wonderful way to put it because I want people to have access not only to my art, but to art in general. I want people to be able to walk up to a work of art and to feel comfortable asking questions about it. I, that's one nice thing about Studio 831, being in Noto. It's a storefront. It's not a museum. And so people can walk in, people from all walks of life who've maybe never set foot in an art museum can come in here and stroll around with, with other people, rub shoulders with artists, with people with all kinds of professions mm -hmm. of educational levels and socioeconomic of, well, I don't want to say rankings, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. People from, from all around. And I have spoken 
to a number of people who um, obviously have not talked about art before. Right. And they're captivated by something and they'll stand there and look at it. They feel comfortable looking at it because there are other people around and, you know, where it's informal. And I can tell when someone is, is, as I say, captivated. So I'll let them look for a few moments and then I'll walk up and say something because I'm not very shy. So I say something like, um, do you have a question? Or um, I see a look on your face that indicates uh, that you find something amusing or, um, you know, that you're enjoying this. You just like kind of state your perception of of what they see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do sometimes. Sometimes I just say. That's very outgoing of you. I'm I'm the artist and I'll be happy to answer any questions. You're like, whoa, the artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm the artist. I'm the one. I had an opening one time in Kansas City. And the gallery space was huge and it was a one woman show. And I was standing kind of by myself and the gallery director was off somewhere else and people were strolling through and no one was asking any questions or anything. I thought, oh, this isn't working. Well, as it happened, the show was held over for another first Friday. I stationed myself right by the door where people were going to walk in by the work. And a number of times I said, hi, I'm the artist. Do you have questions? Or, you know, is there is there something that's attracting you to this? Or, you know, any number right. of kind of conversational openers. Mm-hmm. I sold nine things that evening. And I, from different price ranges, it had to do with the fact that someone was engaging them. The artist was engaging them. People like to have a piece of the artist. Yeah, yeah. It's an artist and a, a creative in any field, not just a visual artist has to have a kind of a mythology. Uh, And if you create it arbitrarily, it doesn't work. It has to just sort of build up by itself, which mine did because of partly the crows that gave people a way in. Oh, you're the artist who paints crows. Oh. Tell me about the crows. What is it about you or your crows that that people want to capture and bring home with them? So they want a piece of the artist. What's what's that piece? Okay. Well, I wear black always. And I've been around a long time. And so there's something I think about my wearing black and painting crows and using the crow as a kind of totem, identifying with the crow, and the fact that crows and ravens have 
mythologies in all kinds of cultures around the world. And people know that crows and ravens are different. They have many uh, bad, you know, evil things. Mm -hmm. They're not at all, but people think they are. It's because they're so intelligent. They are probably the most intelligent bird. Oh, I did not know that. The raven. They are capable of building tools, especially the crow. They, to get food, they can solve problems. They have a social order. They have a system of justice. They have um, a way of passing knowledge down through their generations. They um, are adaptable. They can live anywhere around humans and make do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're, they, they kind of like to give humans a piece of their minds once in a while, which is really, really funny. Um, I, I keep hearing stories about crows. I keep reading about them. I see things on Facebook. People send me things that they have found. People give me little crow statues and little stuffed, stuffed things, you know, that with yeah. artificial feathers and so forth. It's a way in to me and my work with something that is recognizable. Definitely, I get that. It's not. It's not something um, that's so, you know, intellectually out there that they can't approach me. Everyone see, sees crows, right? Do you see a lot of yourself in the crow? Are, are you the human crow? No one's ever asked me that question, Tanner. <laughs> People have asked me why I like crows. People have asked me if I'd like to have a pet crow, but no one has ever asked me about a human crow. Um, in answer to that question, which is kind of sparked um, something, it could be because a crow to me is a metaphor for, well, personally, I take it as a metaphor for women adaptability, flexibility, ability to solve problems. Now males have the, all this too, but I'm a female, so I'm going to grab it. But anyway, it's, um, I think that it's, uh, it could very well be. For instance, I identify with the sycamore tree. Uh, so obviously I identify with crows, and there are certain colors that seem very personal to me. Um, was that an intentional decision to begin painting crows, or did it just kind of come out of you no, naturally? No, it just it came. My first experience was very early on in the women's series, back in the early 90s. <clears throat> I was doing research about women, women's relationships and families, and, and I was looking at old wives' tales and folklore and um, why, 
women say things and or or believe things and why these are uh, culturally important you right. know is this the way we pass knowledge down and I uh, started thinking about the fact that one of the things that older women are called is old crows. I've, yes, I've heard that. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, crows. Okay, old crows. Where does that come from? Well, I began to use, I was using um, a sort of bird, black bird-headed figure. Of, and bird woman is an archetype. So the bird-headed figure just kind of came out. Well, then I started using these, these really kind of strange-looking black birds with these tremendously long beaks, these yellow eyes, and they'd be lined up. They would be the Greek chorus. So I had crows going in two ways, although I wasn't really thinking of them as crows so much. It's just kind of general birds. And then I began to be interested in the whole concept of crow itself. And the bird began to appear as a more naturalistic bird, not okay. necessarily bird woman, but the bird itself became a powerful symbol for me. And that's kind of how it got started. It wasn't a conscious going out and sitting in my studio and saying, okay, what should I do here? I mean, it doesn't work that way. Not usually anyway. <laughs> Those are days when I'm really, you know, desperate for an idea when I do it that way. But it, it evolved. It evolved along with some other symbols that I use, and it just it has just grown until it's sort of natural. You know, I just I feel very comfortable with the whole so, so it kind of arose spontaneously, and then has kind of evolved from there. Mm -hmm. And you seem to indicate that like being intentional about what you're about to draw or paint, it is kind of a anti-creative thing for you that. That it more needs to just kind of come out? Well, there's a difference between intentionality and having these things sort of, well, I don't know if they float around, but be part of your vocabulary or your... Um, <clears throat> your retinue, right. <laughs> as it were. Um, I, when I want to create a piece or get a new idea, it's, uh, the, the research is, is deliberate. For instance, if I want to do a political piece, okay, what, you know, what do I want to say? Mm -hmm. So that part is deliberate. Once the idea or the visual concept begins to take shape, these other elements crowd in. Yeah. I, I don't intentionally say, okay, I think I'm going to put some crows in here. 
They either want to be there or they don't. So it's a balance of how intentional the work is and what I can step aside and allow to happen. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, um, and I think for any creative person, it would be that way because for an author, his, his or her characters begin to take over and yeah. write the story themselves. Well, it's the same thing for a visual artist. Very cool. That's, that's <laughs> wonderful. That must be such a magical feeling every time that, that occurs. It is a magical feeling. That's one thing that keeps me just as fascinated with painting and drawing as, now as I was many years ago. And it's so, never lost its yeah. its magic, and that's the best word. What was it when you started that really, do you have a story that would exemplify how, how this became kind of the purpose in which you lived with, the, the medium in which you communicated, the artistic outlet? How did you discover this? I have thought of myself as an artist and identified it as an artist since I was a child. I mean, it never occurred to me to be anything else, except in fifth grade, I thought I wanted to be a nun, but I discovered what? boys, and so that was the end of that. <laughs> but I, I always, always drew and painted and did things along that line. I was happiest when that happened. I had no um, question about what my emphasis would be, junior high, high school, college, graduate school, my life. Visual art was my fort, and that's what I was going to do. It's, it's sometimes so powerful that you can't not do it. Even if you have to perhaps uh, take another job or have another profession, and there are many people who do, you still always find time for art. I worked in a bank several times, full time. I taught two classes at Washburn in the evenings. I helped form the collective art gallery and I continued to create a body of work. I had a new husband and a house. I mean, but the art was always there. The yeah. only time in my life, in my memory, that I did not make art was when I was pregnant. One time. I mean, I've only got one child, so. <laughs> Why was that? Did you have a different priority that you needed to focus on? I wasn't feeling well to start with. And I knew that oil paint was not something that one who was pregnant should be exposed to. Yeah. Now, I could have been doing some drawing and things like that. I don't know why. I just 
completely shut down on my, maybe it's because I was creating something else. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. But um, shortly after she was born, I was at it again. Nice. With a vengeance. So. Was that like a low period of your life then for nine months when you stopped doing art or just what it was it what? No, I, I wouldn't consider it a low period. I would consider it a quiet period. And when I'm not working is when new ideas are happening in there, there even if I'm not thinking about it. Because um, when I get back to it, you know, I mean, if I've been away from it for a few days or a couple of weeks, which rarely happens, but <clears throat> I, I somehow come back with fresh ideas. So, yeah. you know, when they talk about artist's block or writer's block, it's frightening. And I've had those. I've had both <laughs> since I'm a writer also. Yeah. Um, and the first time it happened to me with any length of time at all, I panicked. I thought, oh, my God, I've lost it. I don't know how to draw anymore. I don't know how to paint. I haven't got any ideas. Oh, my God. You know, I was going through all this emotional turmoil. Well, it came back. And somehow I started doing much stronger work than I was doing before it happened. And I thought, oh, phew. <laughs> well, then sometime later it happened again. Yeah. Oh my God, I forgot. But, you know, you go through the same thing. And then it came back stronger than ever. And then it dawned on me, this is a natural cycle. You can't be doing masterpieces well i mean you know really good work i shouldn't say masterpieces but you can't be on the very top of your very best game 24 7. right you have to have a little time to rejuvenate you have to have a little time to re-energize mm -hmm. and so it's a natural cycle and now when that happens, I, oh, I doodle ideas or go back and finish something. But you don't try to fight it as much, maybe. I don't fight it. Yeah. I just relax into it. Okay, there's a reason. Maybe I can get some other things done yeah. that I need to finish. It's okay, Barbara. It's fine. Be calm. Don't worry. It'll all you gotta like command. mother yourself a little. Mother bit. myself a little, and I have told other artists who come to me with, "Oh my God, I, I don't have any ideas. I don't, you know, it's awful with this and that." And I'll say, "Relax, it'll it'll pass." How how does being in that mentorship role um, play a role in your purpose? I think <clears throat> that some time ago. I realized that I had more than one function, that I was not strictly put here, or however you want to think about it, my fate or my destiny, um, 
was not simply to create work, to create pieces of art, mm -hmm. but was also to create a nourishing environment for other artists. And it took me a long time to realize just how important that was. And, you know, I did a lot of teaching and I loved it. And I've had students tell me they've changed their majors because of me, or they, for instance, there's a young artist who has a show uh, at the Hutchinson Art Center right now. And she's a figurative painter. Her name is Rachel Foster. She was my student at Kansas State. Mm. And she said that I changed her attitude toward painting and toward figurative art. My God, that blew me away when I heard that. That's a lot of responsibility. Definitely. When someone totally changes his or her life or his or her direction because of something you've said. Um, but I found that because it, it happens over and over again, that I have the opportunity to mentor or to teach or to whatever, that it's obviously intended to be part of my purpose. And, and it's rewarding for me in that sense that I am able to help people. That's very rewarding in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, it strengthens my work. Yeah. Um, because in talking about, in verbalizing things for other artists, sometimes I listen to myself and I think, now wait a minute, that's true. Why haven't I applied that to my own, right. you know? So it's, it's a very positive win-win all the way around. Right. Um, what, what kind of people came into your life as a mentor to help you, maybe give you permission to fully follow your purpose or to re help you refine your purpose? That's a wonderful question, Tanner. Um, I have had professors and teachers of art um, I, my earliest art teacher, uh, specifically art teacher was a gentleman whose name I don't remember, but he was the first one to show me how to handle oil paint in seventh grade. Wow. Wow. Now students do not use oil paints in seventh grade anymore because they're so toxic. It's usually acrylics, but at that time, and I remember him well. I had a wonderful uh, art teacher in high school. Her name was Mrs. Davis, and she was a sweetheart, and she would let me work in the classroom after school. And she was a wonderful mentor. Then I've had a, a huge range of mentors in college and graduate school. Um, one of them, of course, is Edna Vaughn, who taught at Washburn for many years and retired recently. He taught me oil painting and drawing and um, the academic classic, classical way of doing things. And I, 
his work is so wonderful that, you know, I just, I thought, oh my God, I'll never be that good. I had uh, a professor whose name was Joan Foth, and she taught me watercolor and uh, life drawing, but she taught me life lessons about being a woman and an artist, and mm. I am forever grateful for that. At Kansas State, I had some wonderful professors. This is grad school. And one of them was Jim Muntz, who taught me printmaking. I mean, seriously taught me printmaking. I had so much wonderful, uh, what, time uh, in his class. And he taught me not only the methods of printmaking, he taught me a lot of things about visual language, about um, <clears throat> how to make form work. He always said, how do you want this form to function? <laughs> and I thought that is such a simple and yet powerful question that anyone needs to ask himself or herself when approaching any creative thing. How do you want this to function? What do you want this to say? And so there is always a commentary involved, you think? Oh, yeah. yeah. There is a commentary that I enter into with my work. Um, you know, okay, so I have the concept of the work, of the piece itself. I want this to be in the Ship of Fools series. I want to talk about this and this and this. But then you start in on how to formally make that work on the picture plane, right. on the canvas, how, uh, you know, is, if you make this figure large, what, how is that going to function against this figure that's much smaller? The color you use. Mm -hmm. uh, if you use too much contrast in an area that's only a minor area and attention is called to that, why? Why did you call attention to that? Uh, that is what he meant. Think about, you know, where where is your focus? What what are you really trying to say here? And if you go over here in this other area that's not very important, and and you know, give it all kinds of emphasis, then you're you're not. Yeah. So back to these life lessons on being a woman and being an artist. Mm -hmm. um, how have those life lessons kind of shown up in, in your form? Well, um, perhaps one thing is that I paint what I want to. Um, I haven't had it... Um, haven't had ideas that I've had crushed. Oh, I had in the past, yes. <laughs> because, um, you know, things that I would want to paint 
oh, well, you know, that's not serious art or that's not this or that. And for a long time, artists weren't painting the figure at all. Artists were not painting anything to do with any emotion or any narrative. It was all strictly about the paint and about the forms and about the surface and all of this like that, you know. Okay, you'd make it red. And that had, I mean, the whole canvas red. And that had to say everything. And, and were you really trying to say anything? Just, you had this, this object, you know? I mean, it, and here I wanted to paint figures and people interacting that, that didn't conform to the isms that were currently around, like minimalism, abstract expressionism, and, uh, um, Let's see, what were some of the others? Well, anyway, I won't bore you with all that. How do you feel about being defined by those labels? Is the, do you kind of pride yourself in, on your individual path of purpose by saying, I don't need to abide by these labels, I can follow what really is coming out of me? Sure. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm hard to pigeonhole anyway. Yeah. I have had a number of people to <laughs> say, I, you know, what? Exactly, you know, how you're not really just a landscape painter, you're not just a floral painter, you're not just this and that, you do all kinds of things. Right, I sure do. I, I do a lot of, I do a lot of different things. I, you can't quite put me into any category mm -hmm. because the minute you try to, I've got a finger going over there, or <laughs> some something else shows up over here. Why are here. you doing that? Those are intentional. Why are you doing that? Why am I doing that? Yeah. Because, okay, as an artist and as a person, I mean, I only, I'm only going around once, and I I want to explore a lot of different things. And I do different things for different reasons. I paint landscapes because I'm in awe of the beautiful Kansas landscape, the, yeah. the Flint Hills, our skies, all of the color, the texture, all of that. I love it. I paint flowers because I think they're exquisite and I love to play with the light and the luminosity and the, yeah. you know, the delicacy and on and on. Okay. So I like to do those. I, my most serious work and the work to me that's most engaging is my figurative work, whichever form it takes, whether I'm doing a straightforward portrait or something in the women series, the men series, the men and women series, or the ship of fools or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, right now I'm trying to develop some ideas for the theater of the absurd series, which is next. And, but I haven't put anything on canvas yet. I'm still drawing still sketching, gathering idea. I, I want to explore as, as much as I can 
you know, I have so many ideas that, and I, I think in a nutshell, I would be bored silly if I painted the same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some artists who within very narrow parameters have created some absolutely marvelous things. Yeah. Doing the same thing, but revisiting it and doing wonderful things with it. Wonderful. That's not me. I I just, you know, I'm I am not the same person I was 20 years ago or 40 years ago. How has that changed? How have you evolved? And how, how has that shown up in your paintings? And how has your purpose shifted as time has gone? Well, that might be a question that might require a whole book, Tanner. Really? Um, we'll I, be expecting that book then. Yeah, I better get busy. <laughs> Actually, I've written journals and, you know, I could take a lot of ex- excerpts out of things and, and try to figure that one out. Um, I think that probably the biggest difference is that I'm more demanding of myself the longer I paint and draw and, you know, am involved in the creative field, the more particular I am and the harder it is to do. And I thought I was alone in that. I thought, oh my God, why, why is painting so much harder than it used to be? Well, I'm not the only one that feels that way. I believe it was, I think it was Edward Manet or Edgar Degas. It was one of the two who said, the more you know about painting, the harder it is. And I thought, ah, I'm not the only one that feels that way. So what is it that you've discovered? about painting as you've known more why why is it harder there are more variables you have to think about i used to slap paint on and think well okay i've got this form and i've got that form and i've got some highlights and some shadows and there you go and people were probably still like well that's a really good painting yeah perhaps um but now, <laughs> not that way. Now I have to think about all the lighting, and I have to think how this color affects that color. And if I put the paint on this way, this will happen. And if I put the paint on that way, something else will happen. And 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 and. Mm-hmm. There are just so many, and one could almost go nuts trying to think about all of the things that are possible. Such a supposedly simple thing as the initial composition. There are endless ways one could compose the same painting. 
Okay, then the values. High key, low key, full range. What do I want? Colors. What do I want? Um, I, uh, um, you know, what kind of, what, how big do I even want it? I mean, there are a thousand things that right. one could think about. Um, I, I'm. How do you not get locked into indecision then? Because, I mean, many things in life are that way too. You make one decision that affects 10 other things. And it's really easy to get paralyzed. And exactly. That's what they might be calling writer's block or whatnot. But how do you, how do you fight that? How do you push forward and, and trust this is the right move I'm making? I'm making a for sure line here and for sure color. It's permanent. It's there. How do you make that decision? That's being a person of purpose. You, I mean, to pull in what you're talking about. There comes a time when you have to trust yourself. When there are so many variables, you make choices. And some of the choices are very conscious. Some of the choices are um, perhaps more intuitive. But you have the you have the sophistication and the knowledge to know that this will work. Um, oh, sure. I, I still once in a while have times when I'm frozen with indecision. Yeah, the last time we met, actually, we were looking at your painting and you said, I can't quite figure it out. It's missing mm -hmm. something. Frozen. And I fussed with it a while longer. Uh, I, the painting did sell. And uh, which I'm thrilled about, but I fought that painting, and I I seem to do more. Well, I don't know if I want to use fighting as the word, but I seem to do more intense engagement with recent paintings. I mean, I'm, I question things, um, making sure I have, I, I'm more particular than I was. I guess I know my time to be painting, you know, might be limited to another 10 or 15 years. Well, that's sobering when you think you know, I don't have 50 years of painting. So you really do feel like you're racing against the clock a little bit? A bit. You know, you when you're my age, you, you've lived probably two-thirds or three-fourths of your life. It's time to get serious. It's time to uh, make every second count. It's Count towards what? Get serious towards what? Accomplish what? Show people something that they haven't seen? What is this thing that you're still trying to capture that you haven't in your 50 plus years of painting? Okay, that's a fair enough question. I, <clears throat> I think I want to make sure that I am doing the very best that I can and doing very interesting work so that I'm not 
wasting everybody's time, including mine. I, I, because I do take my painting very seriously. I don't take myself seriously, but I take my painting very seriously. And if I expect people to enjoy it, to get something from it, you know, to have a takeaway, then it's, it has got to be the, the very best that, that I can do, that I can produce. Um, and, you know, when you've been doing that, when you have felt that for a long time, when you have felt that you continue to improve and you have been doing the best you can, you keep raising your own bar. So I, in a way, have myself to compete with. Mm -hmm. You know, I look back on work that I have done in, oh, probably the last 15 years or so, and the work stands up. I still am very proud of it. I still like not everything I've done, but some notable pieces. Okay, the next 15 years, I better be doing work. This is for myself. I better be doing work that's worthy of what I've done before. I cannot let this work, let that work down. Wow. Does that make sense? Maybe. Yeah. You hold yourself to a very high standard. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what, what is your purpose? We haven't directly talked about that. I think that my pur my purpose is to live a good life, um, you know, be the be a nice person. <laughs> I I uh, but also to be the best artist that I can be. Mm -hmm. To. Um, continue to mentor and teach and to probably go to that big studio up in the sky, um, having left the world a better place than I found it. Now it sounds like a cliche, but I really feel that way. And that's another reason my work has to be as as good as I can make it, and it has to continue to be fresh, new, some something different. I one professor one time told me, never be predictable. That's why I don't put crows in every painting. That would be predictable, and that would become a a device. Um, it's it, having been given this gift, this this talent. It would be a betrayal of something. It would be a betrayal of my, you know, inheritance. You might say, uh, to not use it and to not use it to its fullest potential. 
I am so fortunate that I have a way to express myself that engages other people. You know, I have a way to communicate uh, feelings, ideas. Um, I mean, that's a real privilege. When and when people respond to that, that's another privilege. You know, you don't. We don't exist in a vacuum, and. Um, an artist is a communicator. A writer is a communicator. Mm -hmm. An actor, a dancer, it doesn't matter. You're communicating ideas. You are communicating observations. You're sharing experiences. I don't know. I find all of those very important. I, there was a time when I thought my art was a little bit self-indulgent. And that was a kind of departure point for me. Um, I thought, okay, I'm doing this work for myself. I, I know that. And it's not really telling anybody else or sharing with anyone else anything but what I selfishly want to say. Um, so I, that's when I began to explore a lot of things, and that was kind of the mid-90s. What's an example of something you selfishly wanted to say that you would look back on and say, that was too self-centered of me? I'm sorry. What's an example of something in the past that you maybe thought was too selfish? In the early 90s, I was doing work that was exploring my own past and my own childhood and my own experiences uh, growing up. And I was creating images that talked about that. And they were cathartic for me. Yeah. But they were scary for everybody else because they were very surreal and really weird. <laughs> really weird. So it thing. does matter how it's perceived by another person. That, that is a big thing you keep mentioning. You really want other people to look at your painting and be in awe and question it and have a relationship and engagement to it. And you felt like their, their engagement was maybe more negative back then? It, I think that would be a fair way to put it. Yes, or it would. It was out of touch. They weren't really grasping it the way that you grasped it. There was no way they could have known what I was talking about. And that was why I knew it was self-indulgent. I wasn't using universal themes to talk about something. I was using my own personal stuff, you might say. But how do you avoid using your own personal stuff in your art? Like that, that has to show up, like you kind of said. Oh, yeah, some of the stuff I use is personal, sure. but And even the commentary you make is... 
like if you're going to make a political commentary, it's coming from what, what you... The way I feel, but it's using a platform that's recognizable to other people. Yes, okay. Um, yes, I, I am... Art is personal, always. Right. But if you couch it in terms of universal archetypes, mythology, the current culture, um, you know, what, the movies, uh, some kind of literary reference, other people have a way in then. When it is strictly imagery that's coming out of your own imagination and has no tie to anything anyone else would recognize, it becomes, it's very difficult work then. I mean, not difficult for the artist, but it's, remember, an artist is supposed to be a communicator, right. not a, not sitting in the corner sucking her thumb. Right. So um, I, <clears throat> I realized that this work was for me only. And I thought that, okay, we've done that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> let's let's uh, try something else. And the work became much more interesting. Yeah. When I began to fold in more universal things, much more interesting. I also find it interesting that, that you mentioned you wear black all the time and that you have fairly dark subject matter and dark colors in your painting, but your personality is so radiant and bright and like, it reminds me more of flowers. Like, uh, well, how, how do you heart. explain that dichotomy? Mm, I've been asked that question many times. I'm sure, yeah. Um, and I think that the best answer to that is that there is a light and a shadow. There's light and shadow. There's light and dark. And by openly accepting and expressing the shadow side and being willing to, you know, murk around in there, that frees the light side to interact with, with people. And... And again, it comes back to artists being a communicator. I mean, there's nothing more off-putting than the artist just standing there and not saying anything and expecting the art to do it all. It's the artist, the work, and the viewer. They're inseparable. You cannot simply expect the work in and of itself to say everything without something from the artist and something from the viewer. The viewer has to work too. Right. <laughs> and, um, so you don't come in explaining what it is they should be seeing. You come in kind of asking what they're seeing? Yeah. You know, what, what do you see? Or is there something here, some question you have? Or... Um, you know, I'll even walk up and say, it's pretty weird <laughs> or something, you know. I mean, kind of judging the person, um, which is not really fair, but 
sometimes you can't judge by expression on the face. You know, if somebody's standing there in front of one of my paintings doing this, yeah, just I'm going dis- to approach that person differently than somebody who's saying, oh, you know. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. It's it's such an integral part of me. I mean, I am an artist. I, I, it's not, I don't do just do art. I am an artist. I am my art. What does that mean to you? That means that it's, it's something that I simply must do. I, I live it. It's, um, I mean, in our house, we're surrounded by art. I've got paintings stacked everywhere. In fact, Yesterday, my husband said, I'd like to vacuum. Do you suppose we could put some of these away? (laughs) I said, okay, Sunday, we will put these back in storage. They have come back from shows. They're all wrapped neatly, but they're all over everywhere. (laughs) Of course, he should talk. His stuff is all over everywhere, too. He's He's an artist also, right? He's also an artist. It's ceramics and two-dimensional collage, and so yes. But it means living art. I mean, it's what is art? That's a big. Oh that's boy, big there's the first, question yeah, of the freshman several. year art class. That's the beginning prompt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is art? We're still debating that. We know it when we see it, but what, what is it? Yeah. And I think it's anything that holds up a mirror to us. Anything that is created by a human being that holds up a mirror to other human beings. That might be a bit too general, but... Now, whether the mirror reflects back simply beautiful color or beautiful pattern, or it reflects back something in going on currently, that's that's a different thing. I mean, that's open for debate, but it's I don't know. <laughs> it's just it's the probably the word most used by me on Facebook or something, who knows, you know, I guess you can find out how many times you use individual words hmm. on Facebook. I, uh, I don't have time to do things like that, but I've noticed other people do it. So I thought I'm not really that interested. I already know which words I use all the time and too much. I tried to, uh, dig out the thesaurus once in a while and look for a different word. Of course, as a writer, I find that very essential to not be using the same words over and over again. Yeah. Keep it fresh, keep it fresh, keep it new. Even though you're, you know, maybe you're talking about the same thing. So what is that thesaurus word for the synonym to art that you're using? It helps in my titles. It helps in um, 
finding fascinating words with with that relate to something. Uh, for instance, when I started the Ship of Fools series, I looked up nautical terms. I got writer's cramp writing them all down. How many there are. My God. And some of those sort of gave me clues on how I might express something or what I might talk about or, you know, a ship of fools. Well, in nautical terms, what could I say about a lack of direction or being off course or, mm -hmm. you know, different ways, different uh, names of the rigging in ships? I mean, it. I was captivated yeah. looking at all of that. Dictionaries and thesauri, I suppose you would say. Sounds like a, a dinosaur. Yeah, <laughs> are absolutely full of knowledge if people just take the time. So how, how does writing play a role in your purpose? How, how do you kind of wed it or marry it to your painting? You write for Topeka Magazine, I write for Lawrence Topeka. Magazine. I have written for Lawrence Magazine. I have written for Kansas Magazine. Uh, but Topeka Magazine is the primary one. I've, uh, I wrote uh, an article for the New Art Examiner that came out of Chicago. It's defunct now. I wrote for the Forum, which was a newspaper out of Kansas City. So I, that's been most of my writing has been about art. What are you trying to express that you're not necessarily expressing through your painting? I'm talking about other artists and their work. Oh, okay. I am uh, interested in how, you know, in their process, in their uh, uh, working methods, in their philosophies, in how they survive as artists and I, I want to show other people this wonderful artist and this work that they do and how they fit in mm -hmm. you know where it takes all of us doing a lot of different things to make an art scene it can't just be one or two artists it's the whole bunch of us Mm -hmm. And the more artists there are, the more wonderful um, variety. It's a spice of life, as they say. Don't like to be using cliches, but because I have the honor of writing for Topeka Magazine, I think it is um, a real joy to expose the readers to what these artists are doing. And many of them are friends of mine, mm -hmm. and I've known them for years. And when I interview them, I always find out something new and different about them that I didn't know. And so it's, a, it, it's, a, it's really fun to get acquainted with people I already know.
Right. I mean, but to get acquainted with with them on a deeper level. How and, do you think you're able to accomplish that? Like, what advice do you have for an interviewer? How do you how do you reach a, a new story, grab a new thing out of them that they've never told anyone before? It's funny. I don't quite know how I do that. Um, I have a very relaxed interview style. Uh, we'll sit down and talk about different things, art and so forth. I'm never in a big tube to get started. I used to have a list of questions. Now I don't. I might have like three vague things I might want to know. But we just start talking and even people who are fairly shy, like a recent interview I did, this person was extremely shy and had, you know, just could not imagine that I would want to write about his work or him. Well, we just start chatting and first thing you know, he's telling me all kinds of things. And, you know, wonderful experiences that he's had as an artist or why he, he has this kind of subject matter. And sometimes I think this is a great opportunity for people to verbalize. And it's always wonderful when someone's interested. You know, that, that's a validation for someone. If someone says, I would like to interview you, I would like to talk about you and your work. Wow, you know, that's reinforcing. That says, I'm doing something right. I have, yeah. I have interesting work. I, I guess I'm really an artist, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so I don't know. And it gives me a chance to use words as a medium instead of paint. Are you also the same way with words and like that you don't really picture, put yourself in a box of a, type, a certain type of writer? Sometimes it's playful, sometimes it's serious, sometimes it's dark, sometimes it's whimsical. I don't go to those extremes in writing about other artists because um, I take their work very seriously. If there's something right. humorous, I'll mention it, but I, I want to talk about the work. I want to educate the reader also in, in uh, ways to look at the work. Yeah. And, um, and that helps. I mean, if the person does landscapes, so I'm suddenly talking about you know, how they, which particular landscapes they concentrate on, their colors, maybe the brush stroking. Give people an appreciation of what's involved, of how much work all of this really is, Definitely. but also the aesthetic to help them with understand the aesthetic. However, I don't want to be pedantic either. I don't want to be a pedagogue of here's an art appreciation course. I have taught art appreciation, but uh, I don't do that in my articles. It's, 
it's writing about art in a pleasant, uh, approachable, intelligent way. I don't talk down to my audience, ever. I talk across to them. Um, because I want them to respect the artist and the artist's work. And if I don't treat it seriously, why should they, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I try to keep them pretty, um, I mean, I'm not writing out of art forum by any means, but are you familiar with that magazine? Mm -mm. That is the magazine uh, where art critics uh, write for each other's benefit. And they try to out theorize each other. And if you if if one can follow it, one's doing really well. So that's kind of an inside joke. I'm cutting edge and, and out of touch, and you don't really understand my world, but it's really great, trust me. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not yeah. doing that. I am writing as though the art world is an approachable, engaging world that people can easily be part of. Because you deep down believe that? I do. I think that the old elitism I call it old elitism, where most people were thought of as Philistines who had no understanding of art and never would, is, is selfish. I think that everyone has a right, has, <clears throat> should have an opportunity, however briefly, to have access to the art world. Um, I taught a correspondence course for a community college in Cal Northern California. And um, it was in art appreciation. My students all lived in gated communities like Folsom and some other prisons you may have heard of. So all correspondence was, they would do their assignments, send them to the school. The school would send them to me. Wow. They didn't have direct access to me, but it was all done by correspondence. There was no online anything. Wow. So I, it took a lot of time. But many of these people, these most of them were men, had never had any exposure to art. And they would tell me that. This is my first exposure to art. I've, I've never been to a museum or been anywhere. Um, and we would have on paper discussions about art and they would they had a textbook and they had assignments and they were to look at a work of art and analyze it 
according to some of the questions, but they could also elaborate if they wanted to. And some of them would start out with just almost illiterate comments. By the end of the course, they were saying some very intelligent, um, uh, surprising, wonderful things. I had one student who sent me a letter after the course was over, and he said, I never thought I would be walking across the prison yard with a friend discussing art. I when I read that letter. I thought, if I have, through art, and art is a one, I mean, in whatever form, music or dance or visual arts, poetry, whatever, if I have opened some eyes or given even one person another way to look at the world, yay. And I was told, I I taught for two semesters, and I was told that I had the highest retention rate of any of the other correspondence instructors. And if these uh, students completed a course, it would cut some of their prison time off. So there was an incentive for them to stick with the course. That was such a rewarding thing. Mm -hmm. But it was so exhausting because I'd have 30 students at a time and each one had to be individually you know, when it's all on paper. Correspond, write a letter to each individual. Uh That's also highly personalized and probably had a really profound effect on them. Mm -hmm. Because I treated, I didn't know who these people were. I mean, they were rapists or robbers or murderers. I didn't know what they were. I didn't want to know. Right. I treated each and every one of them with respect. I treated every answer as worthy, you know, it, even if it wasn't a real good answer, I would say, well, now that's, that's, you know, valid, but have you considered so-and-so? Mm-hmm. So I never put anybody down or, you know, in any way, because I wanted it to be a pleasant experience, something they looked forward to to getting their assignments back and seeing what their grades were and what my comments were. And it would, but I I think I lost 10 or 15 pounds during that Tuesday because I'd had to stay up till all hours of the night doing that. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Do you think that any of those people or anyone in general can achieve the kind of purpose that, that you achieved? My audience is listening to you as someone that I've lifted up as saying, like, your words are worthy of being listened to. They're really important. Do you think that, 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 that there's something about you that they could model to achieve? Well, I'd be success? very flattered if they did. Um, I think it's all in 
self-discipline in finding something they really love to do. And everyone has something. I don't care what it is. Everyone has something that they can use as a creative um, outlet. You know, it might be working with wood. It might be uh, working with yarn. It might be painting. It might be uh, dancing. I mean, it, photography. It, it, there are so many different ways. It might be refinishing furniture. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. But if you, if one can find, even if one stumbles upon it, something that you really, that one really enjoys doing, and you find yourself planning time to do it, then you yourself become a person of purpose. Um, I have a cousin who always thought she had no creative ability at all. Well, someone showed her crocheting, and now she loves it. And it's she crochets hats, like stocking hats, and then donates them to places that provide for less fortunate people. So she has the reward of doing it herself, the purpose of doing them for others. Wow, how wonderful is that? Yeah, that's a perfect combination. That's mm -hmm. what we're all looking for. Certainly. I mean, it's um, being a person of purpose. It's simply having something wonderful to work toward. I mean, whether you decide to write a book or cook a meal or travel, it, it, it can be any, any number of things to volunteer work. Purpose is simply having a reason to get up in the morning and having a plan. It's very simple. My plan is, and I usually know early in the day, okay, today I'm going to the studio and I'm going to work on this certain painting. Or today I'm going to the studio and I have students. It's, uh, it's not any big secret. It's not any big um, um, mysterious formula or anything. It's very simple. Um, I hadn't thought of myself as a person of purpose until you mentioned it to me, Tanner. So, uh, But I realized, yeah, my life has purpose. I very definitely have a purpose. Um, it, part of it is for, for myself, for my art, but part of it is to, um, to enable other artists to have a studio. Part of it is to uh, tell other people about art through my writing. 
And part of it is just to sort of live by example that this is, although I don't consciously live, you know, so I'm giving an example. I mean, I'm too busy for that, but, but to, to show by doing, I guess, to, um, it's possible. It's possible. Um, you know, you think that creative endeavors are not a great way to earn a living, but they can be. They can be. And um, I've long known I would never be rich, but I'm rich in so many other, or have the have a feeling of riches in so many other ways that as long as I can pay my bills, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being a person of purpose, sharing it with us. Well, you are entirely welcome. So what actionable step are you going to take next? Do you have a lingering question or something you want help working through? Do you need support in doing what it's going to take to live your purpose? People of Purpose is here for you. Subscribe to the podcast and soak in the stories and words of our wonderful guests. Do you have any friends that might enjoy this episode or the podcast? Bring them on board as a podcast subscriber. If you want to actually see the guests behind the voices, as well as the purposeful people and communities I'm a part of around the world, follow the podcasting journey on Instagram at People of Purpose Podcast. You can connect with our purpose-seeking community on Facebook at People of Purpose by liking and following our page. Know the minute each new episode is published, hear first about upcoming People of Purpose opportunities, and receive regular tidbits of inspiration and media I'm purposely perusing, pursuing, and pondering. It's simply a regular dose of goodness, intentionally filtered by me, to nourish your personal path of purpose. For the ultimate engagement, join our intentional group Purpose Seekers from the Facebook page. Join in longer form discussions, link up with accountability partners, and share in opportunities and challenges to better know and grow in your purpose. Send me a direct message on either Facebook or Instagram if you want to talk privately and receive personalized guidance on how to raise your sales and write your ship. Come forth with your biggest dreams and aspirations, and I will do my best to connect you with the necessary resources and mentors from my network to start your trek along your personal path of purpose. Cheers, and here's to becoming... Your People of Purpose podcast host, Tanner Badgley. Thank you so much for an amazing 2017. In 2017, we published 11 episodes and surpassed 1,000 downloads. I heard numerous stories about how listening to the podcast has really energized you and engaged you with your purpose. And I've been fortunate to help guide some people along in that process. It's such an honor to be a part of that. So thank you very much. I'm here today to talk to you about some of my goals and visions for 2018. I'm truly trying to build a team. With more people involved, we can take this project much further than just with myself. I'm still maintaining the same inspiring goals that I did before. We're going to find the most inspiring guests in the world. 
There's no one that's going to be too untouchable for us. We're going to be seeking those people out. I'm going to be writing them letters. I'm going to be talking to their PR people. Whatever it takes, I'm going to get them to sit down with me and I'm going to ask them everything related to the root of their how and their why of purpose. And I'm doing so in order for you to truly live out your purpose. I believe that by listening to these guests, you're able to step into their shoes and find something relatable that that you can pull out and you can truly live to your fullest potential. I recognize in myself the impact my podcast has had on me. My life has been incredible. I've been able to sit down with guests, disseminate wisdom, make thoughtful decisions, and make tons of progress towards a lot of my dreams. So I'm actually heading to Southeast Asia for the next few months, and then I'll be coming to San Francisco. And... I'm going to be a teacher and I'm really excited to get started with that process. So as we move forward with the, with the podcast, I also hope that we can draw new people in. I hope that your energy towards people of purpose becomes infectious and we can create online groups and communities and support networks and we can share resources and we can truly all engage one another into living more purposefully. I recognize the responsibility I'm in right now as, as the host of this podcast. And I'm here today to ask for an inner circle. I'm asking you to pledge your support financially. So for just $10 a month, you can pledge to support People of Purpose podcast. I want to use all of my time purposefully in order to grow this podcast into the greatest thing it can be. I believe part of doing so is by being a living example of purpose. So for example, you take podcast editing. It takes about 60 to 70% of my time And it's not really a skill set that I have or desire to really, really develop. And if we were just able to have every single listener contribute $2 a month, we would be able to hire a full-time editor. That's just one small example of the team I'm trying to build. I want to support you in this journey, and I'm I'm asking you to support me right now. I I hope that you've seen the benefits, whether it be the actionable steps that that the guests recommend or just this aha moment where someone just says the truth that that truly resonates with you that maybe you've never thought about before or never heard before, but you know deep inside what what that person's saying is true. I know as an interviewer, that's a wonderful feeling when I get that from a guest. So if you do really trust the journey we're on together, I'm asking you to trust this next step. I believe we truly need to assemble a People of Purpose podcast team. So with $10 a month, you can pledge your support. And if you give $20 a month, you'll be able to get People of Purpose gear, a video call with me where we discuss your purpose at length. And finally, I'll be able to give you whatever resources you may need to get you started on that very next step after our video call, whether that may be a book or an email introduction or a DVD or a webinar or whatever it may be. I'm going to do my very best to personalize this to you. So please pledge your support to People of Purpose podcast. Thank you very much. And here's to becoming People of Purpose.